Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Cults are notoriously difficult to classify. To be classified as a cult, however, anything must hold a belief system that differs from that of the mainstream religious community or have a leader who is deified in some way. In other words, a tiny religious organisation that adheres to conventional Christian principles would not be classed as a cult. It's almost certain that a small Christian organisation that believes its leader is the reincarnation of Jesus would do so. The People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ, started by Jim Jones, and Children of God, started by David Berg, are two of many examples. So get comfy and make yourself a brew as we talk about two of the most notorious cults in history. Well, hello, my fellow weirdos. It's Dom, and welcome to Horror House. I hope everyone had an awesome Christmas and there were food comas everywhere. If you're, if you're not in a food coma on Christmas Day, are you even are you even doing Christmas Day properly? You know, it's a requirement. You just got to eat yourself into an absolute coma. Before we get into today's episode, there are a whole bunch of people and podcasts that I want to shout out. So bear with me. There are plenty of people that I want to give some love to. So a massive amount of love to Gore and Guilty, uh, Brianna from Dark Adaption, Holly from Curly Conspiracies, Jess from Mixology and Misdemeanors, M from Horror, Horror Roulette, Renee from Terrible True Crime, Courtney from A Nefarious Nightmare, and Emily from Morbidology. Thank you all so, so, so much for leaving some awesome reviews for me. You're all way too kind. Also, Stephen and Leo from Spoils of Horror for the constant love that you give my podcast on Instagram. All of you are wonderful, amazing fucking human beings. And everybody who's listening, please go listen to all of those guys. Check out their podcasts. You know, they're on Spotify, they're on Apple Podcasts. Go and find them, go and listen, and you won't be disappointed. So, back to the matter at hand. Episode 9, Cults. The People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ and Children of God. Possibly 
two of the most infamous cults in history. So without further delay, let's talk about some cult shit, shall we? So up first, we have Mr. Jim Jones and the People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ. It's a really catchy name, right? Like it, it just rolls off the tongue so easily, so easily. There is no other name that they could have chosen that is better than the People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ. <laughs> Between 1954 and 1978, the People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ was an American new religious organization. Reverend Jim Jones founded the organization in Indianapolis, Indiana. Many people saw Jim Jones's People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ as an egalitarian endeavor in which people would fully carry out the gospel message by living in the community and giving whatever they had. The concept of a decent society that could overcome the problems of racism and poverty motivated him. And although Jones was white, his vision of an integrated congregation attracted largely African Americans to the group. Jones was ordained four years after the People's Temple joined the Christian Church in 1960. Jones predicted a nuclear apocalypse in 1965 and moved the movement to Ukiah, California, where members got involved in both Protestant, Protestant circles and state politics. The temple built relations with many left-wing political figures after Jones moved the group to California in the 1960s and created several facilities around the state, including its headquarters in San Francisco and claimed to have 20,000 members, though 3,000 to 5,000 is more plausible. The People's Temple, however, is best known, unfortunately so, for the events that occurred at a remote settlement in Guyana in November 1978. And if you know, you know. If you don't know, then you're about to. And it is, it's pretty rough. That's an understatement. It's, it's fucked up. The People's Temple obtained a lease for land in Guyana in 1974. The People's Temple Agricultural Project, or Jonestown, was the name given to the community that sprung up on this tract of land. In early 1977, the community had only 50 residents. You know, it's always a good sign when a person names a settlement after themselves. Not in the slightest way is that a red flag. A, only a well-adjusted person would literally name a community after themselves. Not, you know, fucking narcissistic in the slightest. Jones envisaged Jonestown as a socialist paradise, as well as a safe haven from the growing media attention. Tim Carter, a former Temple member, explained why the Temple relocated to Jonestown, saying, in 1974, what we saw in the United States was creeping fascism. Carter explained it was apparent that corporations or the multinationals were getting much larger, their influence was growing within, within the government, and the United States is a racist place. He said the temple concluded that Guyana was a place in a black country where our, our black members could live in peace. It was a socialist government, and it was the only English-speaking country in South America. Jones encouraged Temple members to join him in Guyana when he left, and by late 1978, the population had risen to about 900 individuals. 
Those who relocated there were promised a tropical paradise devoid of the world's alleged wickedness. Jim Jones, Jesus reincarnated, not a lying piece of crap manipulative grifter, not at all. US Congressman Leo Ryan, who was investigating the charges of abuse within the temple, paid a visit to Jonestown on November the 17th, 1978. He was looking to looking into rumours that certain cult members were being detained against their will and that some were being abused physically and mentally. Several temple members indicated an interest in leaving with him during his stay and on November the 18th they accompanied Ryan to the local airstrip in Port uh, Katuma. They were apprehended by temple security officers who opened fire on the group, killing Ryan, three journalists and one of the defectors, and wounded 11 others. NBC cameraman cameraman Bob Brown was one of the journalists who was slain in the attack, and he managed to capture a few seconds of gunfire from the incident on tape. That same evening, in the wake of the shooting, Jones issued suicide orders to the temple members outside the facility through radio. Jones then carried out his revolutionary suicide plan at the complex, which included a fruit drink laced with cyanide, tranquilizers, and sedatives, which members had practiced in the past. Adults drank it after it was squirted into the mouths of babies and children with a syringe, and Jones himself did not drink the poison. Jones died to a gunshot wound to his left temple, which was consistent with being self-inflicted. Nice and quick for Jones. His followers were dying in possibly one of the most traumatic ways imaginable but you know old old jim jones no no he didn't want any of the he didn't want any of the cyanide he was like i'm just going to shoot myself in the fucking head oh <laughs> i'm getting aggy guys i'm getting aggy this is this is going to be an angry episode <laughs> there's audio actually of jones's last sermon and the mass poisoning it's both disturbing and kind of fascinating in a really really morbid way. There were a few sentences that stuck out at me and one of them is no more pain. No Jim, no. Cyanide does not painlessly put you to sleep. It was agonizing both physically and mentally. Oh and uh, another singer, it won't hurt you if you be quiet. No Jim, they are burning from the inside Jim. Not talking is not going to make a fucking difference you absolute waste of oxygen. Oh, I'm getting I'm getting riled up. <laughs> in total, 918 people died in Jonestown, all but two of them from suspected cyanide poisoning, a considerable number of whom were injected against their consent. In what would in what Jones and some people's temple members called revolutionary suicide. The poison caused death within about five minutes for the kids less so for the babies, and an estimated 20 to 30 minutes for adults. The poisonings at Jonestown came after the murder of five others at Port Katuma by Temple members, including US Congressman Leo Ryan, which Jones himself ordered. At Jones's order, four other Temple members committed murder-suicide in the Guyana capital, Georgetown. Miners made up around a third of the victims at 304, babies, young children and teens included. As Jones advocated for suicide, 
guards equipped with pistols and crossbows were ordered to shoot individuals who escaped the Jonestown Pavilion. Temple member Sharon Amos received a radio message from Jonestown early in the evening of November the 18th at the temple's headquarters in Georgetown, uh, directing the members of the headquarters to exact vengeance on the temple's adversaries and then commit revolutionary suicide. Sharon escorted her children, Leanne, 21, Krista, 11, and Martin, 10, into a bathroom once police arrived at the headquarters. Sharon used a kitchen knife to murder Krista and then Martin. Then Leanne helped Sharon kill herself with the knife, and then Leanne killed herself with the knife as well. The temple entered bankruptcy at the end of 1978, and its assets were placed in receivership. Considering the lawsuits, the corporation's attorney, Charles Gary, Gary, filed a petition to dissolve the temple on December the 4th, 1978. In January 1979, the petition was granted in San Francisco Superior Court. A few temple members stayed in Guyana until May 1979 to finish up the movement's businesses before, before returning to the United States. The temple's buildings in Los Angeles, Indianapolis and Redwood Valley, as well as its previous Georgetown headquarters, are still standing. Church congregations are currently using certain historic temple structures, such as the one in Los Angeles. In the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake, the temple's previous San Francisco headquarters, located at 1859 Gieri Boulevard, was demolished. The location is currently occupied by a post office branch. Up until 9-11, the Jonestown Massacre was the single greatest loss of life of American people in a deliberate act. One last thing before I present to you a little promo for an awesome true crime podcast. Jim Jones can get fucked by a cactus, dry, no lube in sight. This is Did Not Need to Know. I'm Jenna. And I'm Danielle. I love true crime. And I hate it. We are sisters, and this is a comedy true crime podcast where I scare Danielle every week with stories that she did not need to know. Follow us to listen. Did Not Need to Know, streaming everywhere, released on Mondays. We are on Instagram at Did Not Need to Know and Facebook and Twitter at DNNTK Podcast. Bye. Speaking of cults, I know this is a bit of a, a, bit of a divergence, but... Kenny Copeland's organization has got to be a cult, right? I mean, have you seen that dude? You cannot tell me that he's some demon wearing a skin suit so he can blend in. Seriously, Google Kenneth Copeland and look at some of those photos and tell me he is not a demon. Full-on demon. Full-on demon. David Berg founded what is currently called the Family International in the 1960s. And it may be the most renowned and controversial cult in American history. The Family International is a Christian new religious movement formed in 1968 by David Berg in Huntington Beach, California, and it's been labelled an authoritarian cult. It was originally known as Teens for Christ, but has gone by several new names since then. That's that. Teens for Christ. Jesus. <laughs> it became known as the Children of God, the Family of Love, 
between 1978 and 1981 was renamed and reformed afterwards, and it was finally abbreviated to the family. However, it was finally rebranded again to the Family International in 2004. Former members have accused the organisation of child sexual assault, some as young as two years old, physical abuse, exploitation, targeting weak people and causing long-term trauma in children that were raised in the organisation. The family movement claimed tens of thousands of adherents, including River and Joaquin Phoenix, Rose McGowan and Jeremy Spencer, according to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. TFI's original doctrine, dubbed The System, was one of salvation, apocalypticism, spiritual revolution revolution and bliss, and scepticism of the outside world. It foretold the emergence of a tyrant known as the Antichrist, the creation of a harsh one-world government, and its final defeat by Jesus Christ in the Second Coming, as did some other fundamentalist cults. It developed a style of evangelism known as flirty fishing in 1976, which used sex to express God's compassion and mercy and convert people, causing controversy. David Berg, TFI's founder and prophetic leader, who was first referred to as Moses David in the Texas press, and was also referred to as followers as Father David, claimed the titles of King the last end-time prophet, Moses, and David. You know that a dude is well-adjusted when he calls himself King, Moses, and the last end-time prophet. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Until his death in 1994, Berg interacted with his followers through Mo letters, which were letters of instruction and advice on a variety of spiritual and practical matters. Karen Zerby, his wife, became the leader of TFI after his death, assuming titles of queen and prophetess. Good lord, there's two of them. Berg handpicked Zerby's consort, Steve Kelly, also known as Peter Amsterdam, an assistant of Berg's. Kelly adopted the moniker King Peter and became TFI's public face, speaking in public far more frequently than Berg or Zerby. So that was a little overview of the cult. Sorry, sorry. Organization. Definitely not a cult. Definitely not a cult. So let's look at the history of the Family International. David Brandt Berg, the movement's founder, was a former Christian missionary alliance minister. Berg began his career as an evangelical preacher in Huntington Beach, California in 1968 with a following of born-again hippies who convened at a coffee house. In 1969, he departed Huntington Beach and took his followers on the road after receiving a revelation that California will be rocked by a massive earthquake. They would spread leaflets and proselytize in the streets. The chain was the name given to COG's top leaders. Members of the Children of God established communes in numerous cities, initially referred to as Connolly colonies. Berg used letters to communicate with his supporters, and over the course of 24 years, he published approximately 3,000 letters known as the Mo Letters. Berg claimed to be God's prophet for the modern world in a letter published in January 1972, aiming to strengthen his spiritual authority 
inside the group. Some members, such as Ruth Gordon, perceived a Mo letter apparently titled Flee as a Bird to Your Mountain in 1972 as a warning to flee America. This, along with the pressure members felt that parents were trying to rescue children who had joined the COG, encouraged members to migrate abroad, first to Europe, eventually to Latin America and East Asia. COG claimed to have 130 communities around the world by 1972, and it had colonies in an estimated 70 nations by the mid-1970s. In the 70s, the BBC reported that the COG had 10,000 full-time members. Berg had launched a new evangelising method called flirty fishing, or FFing, in 1976, which urged female members to display God's love to potential converts through sexual interactions. Beginning in 1973, members of Berg's inner circle engaged in flirty fishing, which was later extended to the full membership in 1976. In February 1978, Berg's group was disbanded and he renamed it the Family of Love in what he called the Reorganization Nationalization Revolution, or RNR. What a mouthful that was. Gee whiz. Berg reformed the movement, firing more than 300 top members after hearing unspecified reports of serious wrongdoings and abuse of their positions. The misuse of authority by the chain, as well as internal debates concerning the use of flirty fishing, are said to have been involved. The gang was also accused of sexually abusing and raping youngsters within the organisation, a charge that was backed up by substantial proof. One-eighth of the movement's overall membership left. Those who stayed joined a reformed movement known as the Family of Love, which ultimately became known as The Family. The group's beliefs remained mostly unchanged. Flirty fishing grew dramatically after 1978 and became a frequent practice among the group. Flirty fishermen in certain areas employed escort firms to meet potential converts. As a result of flirty fishing, TFI claims that over 100,000 people received God's gift of salvation through Jesus and some chose to live the life of a disciple and a missionary. TFI data acquired by researcher Bill Brainbridge suggests that members had sexual contact with 223,989 people while practising flirty fishing from 1974 to 1987. According to the family's official history, the group had far fewer common standards of conduct during the family of love stage than it had previously. In the 1980s, the group uh, tightened its standards to ensure that all member communities provided a very wholesome environment for all, particularly the children, and changed its name to The Family. In March 1989, The Family stated that an urgent memorandum had been sent to all members in early 1985, reminding them that any such activities, those being adult-child sexual contact, are strictly forbidden within our group, and that such activities were grounds for immediate excommunication from the group. Karen Zerby, also known as Mama Maria, Queen Maria, Maria David, or Maria Fontaine, took over as leader of the group after Berg's death in October uh, 1994. 
The Love Charter, which established the rights and obligations of charter members and homes, were introduced in February, February 1995. The Fundamental Family Rules, a collection of rules and principles from the previous TF publications that were still in effect, were also included in the Charter. And to round off the very convoluted history of the Family International, in 2004, the family changed identity one final time and has been known ever since as the Family International. So with that history lesson out the way, which hopefully did not melt everybody's brains, let's get into the nitty gritty, shall we? Yes. Yes, Don. Yes, we shall get into the nitty gritty. The press and the anti-cult movement have both condemned the organisation. Ex-family members have accused the family's leadership of having a policy of lying to outsiders, being steeped in a history of sexual deviance and even meddling in third world politics. The family responds to this that it has been persecuted. During the Children of God era, at least one family member, Verity Carter, recounted being sexually molested from the age of four by members of the cult, including her own father. She blames David Berg's worldview, which stated that God was love and love was sex, and that sex should not be restricted by age or relationship. I've got to disagree with that one, old David Berg. It definitely should be restricted by age and relationship. Carter also claims that she was repeatedly flogged and punished for the tiniest of offences, that she was denied music, television and any culture, and that she had no concept of how the world functioned other than how to deceive outsiders, such as social workers. There could also be a lot of pressure to raise money. Members who were skilled at raising money and distributing pamphlets were dubbed shiners, according to ex-member Jerry Golland. Shamers were those who had low sales. If you didn't meet your quota, you wouldn't be able to come home for supper, he explained. The TFI's recent teachings are based on new spiritual weapons, as they call them. TFI members think they are warriors fighting for the souls and hearts of men in a spiritual struggle between good and evil a spiritual battle for the ages between good and evil. (laughs) And before I wrap this up, there is one of these teachings that I can't not mention because what the fuck, it's bonkers. So TFI members refer to their deep sexual relationship with Jesus as loving Jesus. TFI's loving Jesus teaching is described as a radical kind of bridal theology by the TFI. They believe that the church of followers is Christ's bride and that the members are called to love and serve him with wifey zeal. However, this wedding theology is carried a step further, encouraging members to pretend that Jesus is present with them during sex and masturbation. I mean, I, I don't, that, he's not really the person that I would want to watch me have sex or masturbate to be honest that's sorry jesus pal but that's that is that is me time that is not your time (laughs) to avoid a homosexual relationship with jesus male members are advised to imagine themselves as women oh dearie b 
I'm, I'm cracking up. Many tier five publications, as well as spirit communications purporting to be from Jesus himself, expound on this personal sexual relationship they believe Jesus desires and requires. In graphic poetry, guided visuals, artwork and melodies, TFI imagines itself as his special wife. <laughs> I, I had to I had to I had to talk about that because that is that's just bonkers, right? That is what a way to end that portion. Wow. <laughs> no words. No words. And that's episode nine, done, finished, all wrapped up. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I also hope that the sound on this episode is okay because I did treat myself to a new microphone, that Sure MV7, and it is chef's kiss. It sounds so good in my ears at the moment. Hopefully that's translating into your ears as well. So I also know that I kind of went in on Jim Jones in this episode, but I mean, he was a piece of shit. Let's be honest. He was a piece of shit. As for next week's episode, unfortunately, I won't be putting out an episode next week. I know, I know, I know, I know. Terrible, awful podcast host. Get this get this guy off this podcast. Get someone else in. Uh, unfortunately, university deadlines are upon me and the work won't do itself. Plus, I, I, may, have pres- I may have procrastinated maybe a little bit too much. <laughs> However, there will be, fingers crossed, if all goes to plan, there will be an episode the next Friday. So Friday the 14th of January, I'm hoping to get a new episode out. However, next week, it, it's just not, it's just not going to happen. I need to, I need to finish my assignments. And the new episode coming out hopefully in a few weeks will be back to true crime and this guy is a pretty big fish. He's one of the big guns. It is Randy Craft, aka the scored car scorecard killer. You can follow Horror House True Crime and the Macabre on Insta and Twitter at horrorhouse underscore pod. And you can also give the Facebook page a like or a follow at Horrorhouse Pod. You can find the podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts. And please rate on Spotify and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or the website horrorhousetruecrime.com. So all that's left to say is until next time, stay spooky. And also, I hope everybody has a goddamn amazing New Year's Eve.